Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. been dying to ask you, Richard. So your very first book was actually on the feminist movement in Germany, uh, the turn of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century, a second book, an overview of feminist history. You then started working on um, the disease burden, in, in particularly in Hamburg. You did work on intelligence reports uh, amongst workers. You then looked at uh, crime in Germany. It's an incredible range of social and cultural uh, events that you began to research. So... <coughs> How did you really decide that you were going to write that first book on feminist history? And then how did you get from there across to the Third Reich? So I'm just, I'm just, right. just in and 140 characters if you could do yeah. that for me. Okay. <laughs> thanks very much, Molly. And thanks too to Academy Travel, uh, particularly for bringing me. It's great to be back. I haven't been in Canberra since 1986. Um, and that was in the spring. And it wasn't as cold as it is now. <laughs> so, um, well, how did I get into this? I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I was born and brought up in London. And my family are Welsh. And of course, uh, like anyone who grew up in London in the 50s, I was very struck by the, uh, all the bomb sites, all the damage done to the houses, um, uh, wondered who'd done this. And of course, my parents had been in the war in various ways. They talked about the war quite a lot with their friends. So Germany was a kind of presence in the background. Uh, no, no personal connections with Germany at all. Um, and then when I got to uh, Oxford, or as in, we call it in Cambridge, the other place, in uh, the late 1960s, uh, that was just at the time when German history was opening up, when uh, the archives had become available, uh, historians were just beginning to turn to write about Nazi Germany and its origins in the short and long term after uh, a period of kind of collective amnesia while the Germans were having their, Amer uh, their, their economic miracle. And a lot of my generation in Britain went into European history, continental history, uh, because uh, the universities were expanding at the time, and um, there were jobs going in that field, and there were a lot of people who were teaching us and supervising our work, who were specialists in um, British or French or Spanish or Russian or whatever it was, history. Um, so I thought German history, and the arguments that were going on um, amongst the new generation of German historians who were emerging at that time were very much about the place of Nazi Germany in the longer course of German history and particularly about imperial Germany, the Germany of Bismarck and the Kaiser, where these historians were arguing it was a kind of antechamber to the Third Reich. You could already see the destruction of liberal political culture, if indeed it had ever existed in a full sense in Germany. You could see turning to the right. You could see an authoritarian state, a deeply conservative uh, society, resistance to liberal emancipatory change. So I thought I would test this by picking a liberal movement of social and political emancipation. I started off by looking for the temperance movement, but it seemed it was completely unimportant in German history. They just like they drink too much. <laughs> so uh, I then turned to the feminist movement uh, um, at the suggestion of Jill Stevenson, who'd just written 
really the first book about uh, women in Nazi Germany, and was, she was struck by the lack of any, any work, any published work on, on the history of feminism. Uh, there was a work that was beginning to appear in Britain, particularly about the suffragettes, whose uh, political importance was undisputed. But nobody seemed to know anything about uh, this phenomenon in, in Germany. And yet, when I began to look into it, as I was learning German to do my doctorate uh, in, in Oxford, uh, it became clear it was very large, very well organized, and its history had really been uh, suppressed um, since, the, since the, uh, the, the Third Reich. So as I went over to Germany, I had a nice scholarship to go there. I went into the archives, found massive numbers of political police reports on the feminists. Um, I found their own archive, their own vast uh, collection of uh, minutes, correspondence, and so on. I found personal papers. And it's, uh, I really got into it because it's nothing more exciting for a historian than to actually reconstruct a history of something that's quite unknown and has not been written about before from the original sources. So it was a very heady experience for me uh, as I went into the 1970s. Um, what I argued in the end was that here was a dynamic liberal movement of social and political change with the suffragette, with the suffragette movement demanding the vote, with a sexual liberation movement demanding legalized abortion, uh, equal rights for unmarried mothers and illegitimate children. Um, there was... Uh, there's a whole range of issues in which one wing of the movement was extremely um, dynamic and radical. But this wing then was outmaneuvered and eventually pushed aside by the more uh, conservative, or as they call themselves, moderate wing of the feminist movement just before the First World War. So I thought that was a kind of turning point um, in, in history where liberal values amongst the enormous swathe of middle, the middle class, the majority of women, of course, uh, began to decay. And then you could, I followed that, uh, I wrote more and researched more after I finished the doctorate right through to 1933. And you could see the force that was driving them uh, to the right was nationalism, where attacks by nationalists accusing feminists of undermining the German family and undermining the, uh, the uh, lowering the birth rate and destroying Germany's prospects of outbreeding the French and all sorts of arguments like that. And feminists themselves started to become much more nationalist. And the increasing overlap between the views of the moderate majority and the views of the National Socialists on feminism. That's what I argued there. The centre for the movement was in Hamburg. Stop me if I'm going on too long, money. But the centre of the movement was in Hamburg, uh, and they, that because it's a liberal, self-governing city in the federal system of, 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 of Germany, as it still is, and they had a very active political police which um, kept tabs on the, on, on the feminists. And uh, as I was looking into this, I discovered... Uh, sets of um, what they call pub or pub or bar surveillance reports, which uh, in which eight uh, or ten policemen dressed up as workers and went and listened in the bars and inns uh, of Hamburg and noted down uh, the opinions they heard there. They didn't just just a sample opinion. So the essentially so the the ruling Senate could decide whether the workers were more revolutionary than the Social Democrats who uh, posed a real threat to the merchants' dominance of the city, or whether they were less radical. But there was an enormous range of reports, and they all started in 1892. So what happened in 1892? So I discovered there was a huge cholera epidemic, and more than that, the only cholera epidemic anywhere in Western and Central Europe. And as I got into that, uh, you know, history never works, and it goes a straight line. One thing, one does lead to another, but in a rather haphazard way. So I was going to write an article about the cholera epidemic, and then it was going to be two, and then a short book. 
I ended up by writing 650 pages on it because uh, it's an enorm it's a fantastic um, opportunity um, to, to look at a whole society lit up as in a flash of lightning by this terrible catastrophe of 10,000 people dead in, in six weeks. And Hamburg considered itself a liberal English-type city in a kind of more conservative Germany. So again, the Anglo-German comparison featured there. And then after I'd done that, I looked at the, um, these reports. I asked the, the archivist, who was by now very friendly uh, with him, uh, are there any more of these things, uh, not just on themes like trade unions or feminism or cholera? And said, yes, and there's a whole room full. of the 20,000 reports are labeled worthless reports, Berichte ohne Wert, and um, which meant they were the ones just put to the files of not no great interest, but they were still there, and they were fantastically interesting, sampling the, the workers' opinions on an enormous variety of subjects. So um, I did a book, a selection of about, I think, 450 best reports uh, in, in 20 different chapters, um, and uh, uh, my only book in German, I introduced them in German. My, my editor uh, at the publishers said, yes, it's uh, grammatically fine, but not quite idiomatic, and then the red pencil came out. You know. But I'm still quite proud of having, having done that. Um, and uh, I, I had a broader interest in all of this in the themes of authority and obedience in German history. So I started looking at um, criminal records of one sort and another, and the areas, it, what also directed me towards a cholera epidemic was that uh, the, the um, areas in which cholera was uh, worst in Hamburg were the so-called criminal quarters of the cities. What would you, in Victorian England, they call the rookeries, slums, in other words. Uh, and there's a fantastic record of those. But that fed into the cholera project. And meanwhile, I'd gone to the Prussian Ministry of Justice archive in West Berlin. Um, very convenient. It was the only minist Prussian ministry where the archives were in West Berlin. All the others were in East Berlin or in Potsdam, much more difficult to research. And I just came across a report of an execution um, there, which was the most extraordinary document I've, I've ever read, I think. It, it was from 1854, and um, it described a public execution by decapitation in which um, the poor malefactor's head was struck off with a sword, blood spurted out of the wound, and people rushed up with bugs and caught the blood and rushed away. So, hey, this is pretty odd for the mid-19th century. And that got me interested in the whole reasons why this happened, how, what this told you about German attitudes to, particularly Prussian attitudes, towards um, deviants, um, malefactors, lawbreakers. Uh, and it seemed to be quite a complicated sort of history. So I spent 17 years on and off working on that. Um, I had this rather silly idea uh, that no German professor would ever take me seriously unless I wrote a thousand-page book. <laughs> so I wrote a thousand-page book, which, of course, hardly anybody's ever read uh, <laughs> as a consequence. I, yeah, I know you read all my stuff, Marnie. I, I'm deeply um, grateful to you for all of this. So, but, um, uh, and, of course, you translate into German. You have to add 20% on to uh, English length if you translate into German because there, it takes more words to say the same thing, and the words themselves are longer. So it's 1,300 pages in German. Um, so what lies behind all this is, is, is kind of the, the, guiding, the, the connecting link is a comparison really between England and, and Germany um, because the German historians who I and my friends like Jeff Ely and Dave Blackburn and Dick Geary and uh, others were... Uh, 
looking at in a critical way was the idea that England was a kind of model transition to modernity and Germany deviated for the English path. And this seemed very um, strange and oversimple to us at a time when uh, there's a lot of discourse in England on the left uh, about the backwardness of the English uh, social hierarchies. So that kind of comparison was, is, is the thread that's running through that. That led me to write a comparative work about feminism uh, and then uh, then I think I'll stop there because, uh, of course, every historian... Well, I'll say one thing more. Every historian of Germany, I think, has in some way or other to confront the phenomenon of Nazism. It kind of lies like a shadow over the whole of German history. So <coughs> a lot of my work has been trying to answer the question, what were the long-term roots of Nazism? Was it this deviation from the English path? Uh, was it a collapse of liberalism before 1914? And was it the, the lack of democratic values? And I got involved in a, as an expert witness in a defamation action, a libel trial, which hinged on Holocaust denial. And the lawyers uh, in the trial for, for the defense of Deborah Lipstadt is being accused of um, libeling David Irving, the writer, by calling him a falsifier of history and a Holocaust denier. They said, can you just direct us to a good, solid, quite fairly large-scale, detailed history of Nazi Germany? And I couldn't. There's an old one by... Bracher, there's a terrible one by Shira, there's a more recent one but very partial one by, by Burley, but otherwise no, uh, and so in, as is the way of things, I decided to write one myself and it was going to be one volume um, and then it all got too long, so then it was two volumes and then finally it became three, and again chance enters the picture because the initial idea of Penguin, the publishers, was that my two volumes would be kind of broader background to Ian Kershaw's two volumes on Hitler um, but Richard Overy is another friend of mine. He somehow he was late. He failed to deliver a book called *The Dictators*, which is going to be their lead uh, title in their autumn, my Christmas catalog. And uh, he said it's going to be two years late. So they said rather desperately, "Could you do three volumes instead of two? If you take, I already sent them the first six chapters of what was to be the first volume. So it became three volumes, and um, it works much better that way because. Kershaw's dividing point of 1936 doesn't really mean very much, I think. It's a bit arbitrary. Whereas dividing the history of Nazi Germany in 1933 uh, with the Nazi Caesar of Power and then 1939 with the um, outbreak of the war uh, makes a lot more sense. So I was quite pleased that it, it, it went that way. And then along the way, I, um, uh, I was t did some teaching and some thinking about how you study history, what history means, can we know anything about the past, and so on. So a few much, much shorter books um, appeared about, about that. There's four or five that I've done uh, in between times, as it were. So that's the answer. I'm finding incredibly long, detailed answer to your, your question. Historian. So I'm going to open up to the audience in just a second, but we've got a, a question in already from the internet from Kirk Grinham. What contributed most to the Holocaust? Pre-existing German anti-Semitism, ruthless propaganda, or something else entirely? Well, it's not uh, pre-existing German anti-Semitism because uh, a very large sections of the German population were only very, very mildly anti-Semitic. -anti if you look at the Social Democrats and the Communists, for example, they, they actually got more votes than the Nazis did, if you could put them together, in the last three elections of the Weimar Republic in November 1932. And they famously condemned anti-Semitism, as they said, it's the socialism of fools. In other words, you're a fool if you think it's the Jews are causing the 
uh, poverty of the working and exploitation of the working class is capitalism uh, and capitalists, uh, and, and they are not Jewish, only a very tiny number are. So uh, German anti-Semitism, no. Um, the, uh, you can see there's a lot of liberal sentiment on, on the liberal parties in Germany. Um, they, again, they drove through the granting of civil equality to uh, German Jews, practitioners of the, of the Jewish religion in the 19th century and were very much um, pro, if you like, philo-Semitic. There's a strong strand of philo-Semitism there. But there are, were forces in the, uh, in, in the Weimar Republic in particular, the democracy set up at the end of the First World War, which um, uh, blamed the Jews uh, uh, for, for, incidentally, less than 1% of the German population uh, at that time for the uh, defeat of Germany in the First World War, the so-called stab in the back legend. And Hitler in particular, who came into politics at the end of the First World War, thought uh, that the Jews in Germany were a terrible subversive force and they had to be eliminated uh, if Germany, under his rule, starting in 1933, was going to win the war that he planned or intended from the very beginning. They had to be thrown out of Germany. So there's no further, no, no new stab in the back. And uh, he might succeeded in pushing about half of the Jewish population, about, uh, about half a million, uh, 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 sorry, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, out, out of Germany um, by one means and another. Uh, the population was, uh, as I said, very small, but he forced many of them to, to emigrate. Um, and then uh, the paranoid uh, anti-Semitism of Hitler and the Nazis became even more so, as it were, with, with the war. He gave a famous speech in the 30th of January 1939 where he said, if there is another world war, if the Jews start another world war, and by this time he saw the Jews everywhere as plotting to destroy Nazi Germany, then he said it was not the Germans who will be annihilated, it will be the Jews of Europe. And uh, when you had the... It goes in stages and becomes more and more uh, radical, but... Certainly when America, in effect, entered the war with, uh, with the Atlantic Charter in the autumn of 1941, and when uh, he invaded the Soviet Union just a couple of months before, uh, then for him the war became a war against the Jews. And very quickly, extermination program began. So it happens in, in, in stages, I think, and it's wrong to read <coughs> anti-Semitism of that extreme murderous kind back into f further reaches of German history. We've got one just here, um, and before we get the microphone to somebody, we've got, got one just here, up around here, and just a reminder that if you're on Twitter, at ANU underscore events, or hashtag ANU, just to let us know your questions. Thank you. If you could speak loudly into the microphone, that'd be good. Um, look, thank you very much for all the fantastic historical scholarship you've done around uh, Nazi Germany. I've read so many books on, um, on Nazi Germany, but your books are definitely the best. Um, my question is, um, it's a fairly big question, so I'm sure you'll only want to give a broad brush sort of answer, but I was really struck in the, over the Battle of Berlin, uh, just how much the resistance to the Russians just continued um, on and on, even though the cause was completely hopeless, and I have an impression that uh, German people, a very large number of German people, seem to have faith in Adolf Hitler and his regime right to the sort of bitter end. Just in broad terms, what happened immediately after the war, I mean, and... 
over the next five years in terms of uh, changes in public opinion, particularly from ordinary working class Germans? Right. Right. Well, there's several questions there, I think. Yes. Um, is this, can you hear me? I think this is, you've got to turn this up again. Okay, yeah, that, that's better. Um, well, first of all, why did the Germans carry on fighting towards the end? I mean, they knew, you know, we've got secret um, service, uh, the SD, the, the, the security service of the SS. You have their reports and local authority reports about morale right through the Third Reich. And we know that from 1943 onwards, people felt that Germany was going to lose the war. Uh, things are getting more and more desperate. And indeed, they started blaming Hitler and the, and, and the Nazis. Famously, Hermann Goering uh, said, if a as the head of the Luftwaffe, the, the Air Force, if a single German, uh, Allied bomb uh, lands on a German city, you can call me Mr. Meyer. So after several thousands of bombs, everybody called him Mr. Meyer. Um, so they, they fight on. Well, they fight on for several reasons. One is they fight on for nationalist reasons. So less and less are they fighting for Hitler and the Nazis, and more and more for... Uh, in order, as they see it, to preserve Germany, for, for, to, to, to hold up Germany against the invaders. And secondly, uh, they, they fight out of fear. Fear, first of all, of the Nazi party, because in the later stages of the war, it, it, it increasingly took over from the state and ratcheted up uh, the terror uh, of people who they saw as defeatists. Until the last months of the war, they were hanging people publicly in the streets with labels around their necks saying, I wanted to do a deal with the Bolsheviks or um, I, I believe that we couldn't win, this kind of thing. Uh, and even more, it's fear of the, of the, the Red Army, uh, of what they will do. Goebbels used that in, in propaganda uh, when the Red Army started invading of the atrocities that they committed. And they're very real. I mean, there are, it's an unknown, but certainly hundreds of thousands of women uh, are raped by the Red Army, for example. And there are tens of thousands of German civilians who are killed by them. So it's a very real uh, fear, and that is a very strong um, force, I think, in impelling people to fight on. Propaganda plays a role, coming back also to the previous question, um, but it's not as effective as you, might, as you might think. Goebbels could not persuade anybody that Germany was winning the war, apart from a handful of fanatical Nazis, for example. After the war... So just a question, well, what happened yeah, after the question. war? So well, after the war... Um, well, first of all, it's very interesting. When you look at um, the, the countries that Germany, the Nazis, occupied, you find resistant movements everywhere. And when the Allies occupy Germany, there's no resistance. It just doesn't happen. And it's partly because Hitler's been killed, killed himself, as emerges... So, and a lot of people had thought had been kind of consistently been held together to some extent by um, by people's allegiance to Hitler, although increasingly less so. <coughs> but he, there was no Hitler anymore. Um, the Nazi Party dissolved; uh, it, it just fell to bits at the end of the war. Germany had been utterly defeated; cities were in ruins; um, millions of Germans had been killed. So, um, it was a complete, utter, and total defeat unlike the First World War, which ended with the Germans still occupying uh, enemy territory. So um, it's the complete sort of defeat. And then uh, the Allied occupation is very, very thorough. It lasts quite a long time. And uh, they're very, very tough because they're very neurotic and nervous about possibility of German resistance. Um, and you find their opinion polls quite interesting. 
There's a notorious one about five years after the end of the war uh, where a majority of Germans say, um, it's a kind of multiple choice thing, and they plump for Nazism was a good idea, poorly carried out. Um, <laughs> but you have to think about that. You know, it's a bit shocking they say it's a good idea, but uh, then what do they mean by good idea? They don't mean the extermination of the Jews. They mean rebuilding society, all the Nazi propaganda about everybody getting together and, um, and making it prosperous and making Germany stand tall in the world and so on. But badly carried out, I think, is just as important as the, the, the idea that it was good. And, of course, there were the Socialist Party, Social Democrats, re-emerged very much with the old Marxist program, which showed... Uh, that they, the, the large proportion of the working class had not actually taken on board the Nazi ideology at all. They just sort of just kept quiet about what they, what they thought. Um, and it wasn't until 1959 that the Social Democrats abandoned the official policy of the Marxist revolution, albeit a, a peaceful and a gradual one. Communism in West Germany collapsed very quickly because it was identified with East Germany. So there's no mass communist movement in West Germany like there is in Italy or France, for example. And it's the economic miracle. I mean, the revival of German prosperity, German industry, German uh, economy in the 1950s, so-called economic miracle, that then convinces the broad mass of people uh, that democracy, unlike in the Weimar years, democracy can deliver prosperity. So it's okay. Richard, we've got a number of history students here this evening, and I got a question in via Twitter from the ANU History Learning Community. What advice would you give to young aspiring historians, and is there something that you would say to, you, to your younger self in encouraging yourself to do history? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I mean, I was always obsessed with history. I, I, I wrote my first history book at the age of 10, I have to confess. I had, I had, <laughs> model, I had, I had model soldiers, and I used to do the manoeuvres then, sort of write them up, so... It's a bit sad, really, but still. Um, but I really loved reading history books, even the most boring textbook. I would read it from cover to cover as soon as I got it when I was a teenager. And then, of course, I was introduced to, um, uh, to the, uh, the great works of history. And I think one piece of advice I'd, I'd give would, would be find a great narrative work of history. Um, it doesn't, you know, it can be anything, but... Uh, for my case, it was Stephen Runciman's three-volume History of the Crusades, which is the most gripping uh, narrative and one of the most extraordinary episodes in, in, in history. Um, but there are plenty of other ones. But, try, but read. Read a whole book um, and from cover to cover and, read and, and get some idea of, of the excitement that history can convey. Um, and it's particularly important for uh, uh, young historians, people studying history, to read books outside the curriculum. Don't just stick to the textbooks. Go and read other books. And even if they've got nothing to do with, with what, what you're studying, um, it's, it's very important because you get ideas from them. I got a lot of ideas from Stephen Runciman's History of the Crusades about social upheaval, social crises, all the kinds of things which um, have kind of fed into uh, into my later work. I might even have got the idea of writing a three-volume work from <laughs> Stephen Lawson. That's great. I'm going to take another question. I've got one right up the back there. I think uh, if I'd have been talk giving advice to my younger self, it would actually have been, don't spend all your time reading history. Have a bit of fun while you're at university as well. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't just say that. You need to study very hard. All right, up the back. Uh, yes. Uh, do you regard... Uh, 
Nazism as a, as a unique phenomena completely? Or can, or can you draw parallels with some contemporary phenomena? For example, the term Islamofascism has been used by people like Christopher Hitchens to describe mm. some extreme versions of Islam. Do you think there are any parallels there or do they have nothing in common? Well, uh, you know, comparison is very, very important, and comparison means saying what things have got in common and what makes them differ. So Nazism obviously is part of a much wider phenomenon of fascism uh, in interwar Europe, and you find fascist movements in most European countries, larger or small, um, but it also differs from them. So although all fascist movements are racist, they're not racist in the same way. So the Italians, Mussolini's fascists, wanted to build a new Italian person. Uh, they were appallingly racist, racist against um, uh, the Ethiopians when they invaded Ethiopia. Um, as somebody once, com once complained, the, the Italian fascists in the end wanted to make Italians into second-rate Germans. But, um, you know, Mussolini said, you're all sort of disorganized, you, you like your pasta too much, you know, you're going to be disciplined and so on. Uh, no, no wonder it failed in the end. So um, the phenomenon of fascism, Nazism, is different above all because of its anti-Semitism which is far deeper than most fascist movements, so not the Romanian uh, or the Hungarian, uh, who are just as anti-Semitic, or the Croatian. Um, the, uh, uh, and you can go on making more, more comparisons. But what about the present day? Uh, well, there are neo-fascist or post-fascist movements, Golden Dawn in um, Greece, and their logo is like a kind of modified swastika. Uh, and there, there's a strong anti-Semitic element in Jobbik, the uh, post-fascist movement in Hungary. But of course, they're targeting immigrants above all. Um, the, the far right in, in, in Europe is basically rides on anti-immigrant sentiment, and that's not a part of um, interwar fascism. <coughs> I think comparisons with IS, um, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, these extremist Islamist movements uh, are not, they don't really work. Uh, you can actually, they're much, you know, they're not fascist. Um, fascist movements are essentially anti-religious, for one thing. Uh, they don't, you know, Hitler said, we're not a religious movement. We believe in science. Uh, we believe in a secular, rational approach to the future, as, as he saw it. Um, so uh, I think the, the kind of ideology that's driving Islamist extremism is very, very different. There was a cult of self-sacrifice in Nazism, but it wasn't. They never blew themselves up. They never... The idea of a suicide bomber, which is central to extreme Islamism, is not, not a part of Nazism. Um, and uh, you can, it's, it's much better to place Islamist extremist movements in a much longer history of Islamic revival. So if you think, for example, the, the, the revivalist movement that's far best known is the, the Mahdi's movement in Sudan in the late 19th century. When you remember the famous image of General Gordon on the steps of Khartoum being... Uh, there's a, there's a film, not a very good film, starring Laurence Olivier as the Mahdi and Charlton Heston as General Gordon. But that's, that is a kind of, it's, it's, it's a period of one of these periodic Islamist revivals that uh, are fundamentalist in all kinds of, kinds of ways. It's quite different from, um, from fascism or Nazism. I've got a question from Matt Esterman um, on Twitter. Hi, Matt. I do remember teaching you. And he's asked you, Richard, can or should historians be amoral about traumatic events and movements? So what's, how do you take a moral stance or should you try not to judge the things you're writing yeah, about? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, you can't avoid having a personal moral uh, take on what you're writing about. But it's quite redundant um, to... 
uh, if you're writing about Nazism, to, to say, this was bad, these guys were evil. You know, you don't need to say that, you shouldn't need to say that. Um, <coughs> if you're, ex ex you know, describing torture, brutality, murder, uh, aggression, all of these things, um, you don't have to label them as being immoral. Um, but I think, you, you, in a way, one should let your mor one's moral stance come through the writing in, indirectly, I think, by the way one writes about these, these events. Okay, I'm going to take another question from the floor, and I think we've got one down here. <coughs> Thank you. Um, my question is um, <coughs> something to do with my childhood. I grew up in Germany and in 1969 emigrated to Australia. And um, I found it interesting to have some conversations at home over the dinner table with my siblings and parents when my older sister said that the history teacher taught chapter one, two, three, four, five, and chapter six was the Nazi era. And the teacher said, we'll do that one later. They skipped it and then ran out of time. And I'm just wondering, do you have any overview as to when Germans became more um, able to talk about it? And I'm, I'm likening it to my experiences in 1988, where I think in Australia there was a turning point celebrating white people being people immigrating to Australia and sort of coming to terms with the yeah. Aboriginal history. Well, um, that's an interesting question. I think uh, the, the great barrier, of course, to the Germans, um, particularly German schools, teaching Nazism was the fact that most teachers uh, in the 1950s and first half of the 1960s had been teachers in the 1930s. And so they, they would rather avoid the subject. And that's true of many of the professions, doctors, lawyers, um, even historians. Uh, they'd all been in post under, under Hitler. So they preferred to avoid the subject. And it began to change in 1968 with the arrival of the first generation of post-war students who'd been educated entirely um, in <coughs> particularly West, we're talking about West Germany here, um, uh, but in, in a democratic system in which the Americans, the British and French, of course, were very careful that education from the beginning in 1945 would, is, is a democratic education with democratic values. And when these kids arrived in university uh, you know, at the age of 18 uh, or, or 20, then uh, they were confronted by an old generation of professors who were um, didn't who'd been involved in the Nazi period, and that's one of the things that fueled the, the clash of generations that made uh, the universities uh, plunge universities into chaos in 1968. Um, and I think it's after that, really, in the 1970s, that the, the situation begins to change. Um, and by the late 20th century. German kids were complaining that they were taught nothing but Nazism in schools every year. You know, we'd love to, we think it's important, but we'd love to do something else. So I've got another question from the ANU history learning community. Do you think that historians should contribute more to public debates? So we've talked about, you know, obviously your expertise being out there, but history is a very public yeah. thing. So what's your opinion and what skills do you need to do it well? Well, I think public debates are, are very important for historians to engage in. I wouldn't presume to tell all the, you know, the majority of historians they should do it, but somebody's got to do it in the profession. So <coughs> one example would be that uh, when the, uh, the then Secretary of State for Education in the UK in, in the Cameron's coalition government, Michael Gove, wanted to introduce a history curriculum in the schools that would have kids learning nothing but British history and imbibing uh, only a patriotic kind of myths about it, um, I got very cross about that. 
um, because I think politicians should listen to the professionals. And here, uh, he, he obviously wasn't, and I thought that would give kids a very narrow education. In a, an age of globalization, they need to learn about the world. And whether or not um, the Conservative Party in Britain likes it, we are part of the European Union, so they should learn about European history too. Uh, and history is a, an academic discipline, uh, like physics uh, or chemistry, where you need to be taught in schools, you need to be taught the rules and how you do it and how you have a critical take on documents and how you assess the past and how you judge historians and so on. And he was going to chuck that out of the window and just have people learn facts, or rather myths. Um, so it was, uh, it was called content-rich education. Um, so I, I, took, I, I started writing articles in the papers and the Guardian, Factual Times even, um, attacking this and got into a, a scrap um, with him. And in the end, because the British Academy, the Royal Historical Society and the Historical Association, the, the teachers' organization, weighed in as well, uh, he had to withdraw it. And I thought that was an important thing. I was very proud to have been part of that campaign. So I think when you see that, you know, thank you very much. Yeah, I even got a medal from these history teachers. For <laughs> um, but I, so I don't think, it, you know, I think as historians, we need to represent our, our subject in public and make sure it's treated with respect, uh, even by politicians. I've got another question from up the back here. Thanks, Richard. Would you regard people like Lenny Riefenstahl as emblematic of a deeper... Sorry, you have to... Say Would you again. regard people like Lenny Riefenstahl as emblematic of a deeper people feminist... Like Lenny Riefenstahl, the film director? Lenny Riefenstahl. Oh, Lenny Riefenstahl. <sighs> uh, would I regard them as what? As emblematic of a deeper feminist urge... Symptomatic of... A deeper feminist urge in Nazi Germany or just no. brilliant outliers? No, a deeper feminist urge, no. Um, I, I, you know, she was an actress. Uh, who made her name uh, in, in mountain, alpine, alpine romances. And um, she uh, became a film director. And Hitler took a shine to her. She was uh, rather beautiful, and he rather liked this. Goebbels, the propaganda minister, was very cross when he commissioned her to do a film of the uh, Nuremberg Party rally in 1934. Uh, that became Triumph of the Will, uh, the most, one, probably the most famous propaganda film in history, and the only one. They stopped after that. Goebbels was very much against propaganda films. He preferred entertainment, and he thought people got bored by them, and he's probably right. Um, she uh, then went on to make other movies and so on, and after the war um, explored tribal societies in East Africa, went scuba diving and so on, and lived to the age of 100. So um, she's part of that sort of glam world of glamour of, of entertainment, and I don't think you can describe that in any sense as feminist, even though she didn't conform to the Nazi stereotype of women as um, you know, basically sitting at home cooking for their husbands and having ten children. If you had ten children, you got a special medal from, from Hitler, the, the Mother's Cross with laurel wreath or something like that. And you had to... Uh, Hitler was automatically the godfather of your tenth child which led to a number of unfortunate men being called Adolf. <laughs> so I don't think there's any de deeper feminist urge there. Okay, I've got a question in from Twitter from Lily Hannock. What's your opinion of the rise of digital and popular history and will it have an impact on the discipline as a whole? 
the rise of popular history. And digital history. Digital history. Mm. Um, well, uh, popular history has kind of always been with us, really. Uh, I think, on the whole, it's a good thing. Again, um, although some journalists write very good popular history, and some freelance writers think of William Dalrymple or Antonio Fraser, um, uh, and there's a recent excellent book by a journalist uh, on the, the concentration camp at Ravensbrück, Sarah Helm, Sarah Helm, and she's been in archives in 12 countries. She writes fluently, and I think historian, professional historians are going to learn from a lot of popular historians about how to write for a, a general public. And again, I think, though not all of us should do this, and not everything we do should be addressed to a popular audience, again, it's important to try and convey the, res the results of research to a, as wide a readership as possible. Um, digital history, um, well, I'm not quite sure what it means, but one of the things it does mean is, uh, like, take the example of the, the, um, the, the, the court the, the, the court and trial records uh, of, of the Old Bailey and the Newgate records in 18th century London, uh, those have all been digitized and they're all online. And you can go and look, look up and get a fantastically vivid view very easily now of, um, of 18th century crime, poverty, the justice system, all of this. And in fact, it was made into, it was the basis of a, a very successful television drama, drama series. Um, so if digital history means digitizing large numbers of sources and making them freely available, I'm always, uh, I'm very keen on that. It's time the British royal family digitized its archives, I think. Quite a controversial point at the moment. But just before we take another question from the floor, I'm just wondering how many history teachers we've got here this evening. So put your hand up if you're a history teacher. Well, there's a few of you here. What about history students? How many high school students have we got here? Great. Is there a history student that's got a question for Richard? I'm aware. We haven't had one yet, so is there anybody a history Down student? Down the front. Down the front. Good man. Get a microphone. It's right over there. Or in the back, <coughs> the middle. I'll come over. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you described Shira's account of the Third Reich as uh, quite a horrible one. What makes a good work of history, and why is Shira so bad in your opinion? Well, William Shira was a, a superb journalist, and he lived in Germany for uh, a large chunk of the, the 30s. In fact, because America, he's American, because America was neutral up to 1941, um, he lived there during the early part of the war, but he's eventually expelled because uh, he was getting too, too close to people who were opposing Hitler, essentially, and he was warned that the Gestapo were after him. Um, he kept a diary and published it as the Berlin Diary, uh, and it's a wonderful source. It's highly readable, and I can recommend it to everybody for a picture of Germany from the mid-30s to the early 40s. But he then got into, he's a kind of left, left liberal, really, and he got into trouble uh, in the McCarthy era uh, with uh, Senator McCarthy's um, persecution of communists, and he essentially lost his job. And so to make money, he wrote a history of Nazi Germany. And it became an instant bestseller, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, sold over a million copies in a year, um, but and it's brilliantly written. But the problem with, with first of all, it, it's a book that um, focuses very much on foreign policy, the military things, and so on. Uh, even the, the stuff that he recounts in the diary is, is much broader in its application. But above all, he'd been to the Nuremberg rally. He'd been to more than one, I think. But he certainly went to the, the, the one in, in, in one in the mid 30s. And he was uh, totally impressed by the overwhelming uh, support and enthusiasm, hysteria even, 
of people. You see in the triumph of the will, you know, it begins symbolically, of course, of Hitler's flying above the clouds. He then descends onto earth, you know, and then he goes in a, a cavalcade through uh, the streets of Nuremberg and they're hysterically crying, sh shouting, saluting crowds all the way along the way. Shara thought this, this is the German people. They're all 100% behind Hitler. And it's a very, he was fooled in a way by the propaganda, the orchestration uh, that went into that. So he gives a very, very crude picture of the German, German people's support for Hitler, which he then, of course, subscribes in the way of wartime propaganda to Martin Luther teaching people to obey the state and Germans yearning for a strong leader and all these cliches that we now know are really terribly oversimple. So that's why I think it's, 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 a, bad, it's a bad book. It was ruthlessly, devastatingly criticized by the German-American historian Klaus Epstein when it appeared in 1964, I think. It was, uh, or before that, it was uh, out of date even when it was published because Shara had simply hadn't read the historical work that had been going on. Okay, we've got a question. Uh, and what was the second part of the question? Was the second part or was that enough? Um, what makes a good history, what makes a good history work? Uh, what makes a good history, historical work? Well. Well, uh, I think you need to, first of all, you need to do your homework, you need to read uh, a lot, whether it's in the sources, if it's a, a work of research, you need to read as much as, you know, as much as possible that's relevant, you decide what's relevant. But my experience in doing research is that eventually, finally, when you read everything of any possible relevance, you hit a law of diminishing returns. And, the archives start telling you things you already knew, know, and then it's time to stop and get writing. If you're writing a, a survey, you read all the, the secondary work, um, a lot of which is terribly repetitious, thank goodness, or you'd be doing it for decades. Um, and again, it's the same rule applies. So you need to read everything that's, that's and you need to take a broad view, uh, not a narrowly focused one. Uh, and then you need to structure your book uh, so that it makes sense to a reader, and you need to write in a way that's addressed to um, uh, to ordinary, ordinary readers, not fill it with jargon, special terms, sentences 50 lines long, or anything like that. Um, you need to develop a style that will carry people, people on. And I always try and write my books to be read from beginning to end. You start beginning and go to the end, not as works of reference that you dip into. Um, and I think that's important too. So Richard, just before we go to the next question, what about languages in there? You talked about teaching yourself German as a PhD student. Hmm. Would you expect that an historian or history student would have a language other than English to do their research? Well, it's more difficult now than it was because um, it was just expected uh, that you knew a language. So the, one of the qualifications before you even allowed to, uh, to, to, to try and get into Oxford to read history, um, in, when I did it in, the, in the, the 60s, you had to have Latin and one other foreign language and the, in the entrance exam that they set then you would set tests on these and in your first term you had to end with um, translating chunks of the venerable Bede's historic, uh, Historia Ecclesia, Ecclesiastica against St. Glorum which is terrible, it's a medieval Latin you know, if you're used to Cicero and Caesar it's pretty poor stuff um, and then the talk of his ancien regime and so on so once you get the basis of uh, an Indo-European language the structure's all the same, whatever language it is. Um, so German becomes, or, or, or Spanish, or 
um, Swedish becomes, they can become very easy because you, you just slot slightly different words into the same kind of structures. So I'd say the key thing is to, to try and keep language teaching going and expand it in, in the schools. And then if you want to do something like German when you're 21, you, you, can, you can do it. Um, so I think that, that's the answer about languages. And historians, it's very disturbing that it's becoming more difficult for historians to study the history of other countries. Um, because historians very often don't know the languages anymore. Uh, German history is very popular in British universities. In my generation, it was taught mainly by um, British people. Now it's taught mainly by Germans. Okay, so we've got a question up here. Fine. Uh, so Richard, it strikes me that we still treat the period of the Third Reich as extraordinarily different from anything else. Um, hmm. I mean, I'm always reminded of what Barbara Tuckman wrote in A Distant Mirror. You know, she wrote the book to show there were worse centuries in the 20th century. Hmm. You know, do you think we'll ever get to the stage where we treat that era as, okay, terrible events, no dispute about that, but we've had terrible events in the past, we'll probably have them in the future, and as normal history, not yeah. a, a, a history of a, a particular extraordinary kind? Yeah, it's interesting, yes. Barbara Tuckman was a very good American popular historian. She wrote this book, The Distant Mirror, uh, about the 14th century, I think, to show that it was a pretty, pretty rotten century. But there's been, we know a lot more about, about Nazi Germany than we do about most other centuries. Um, uh, medieval historians have got relatively little to go on in most cases. And um, I do think, of course, again, it comes down to comparison, doesn't it? You know, but I do think that the... Nazi extermination of the Jews, the Holocaust, is a unique historical event. It is a genocide, <coughs> and unfortunately there have been other genocides since. Um, but it's a very different kind of genocide. It was designed to be global in scale and absolutely total 100% extermination. Uh, and most other genocides, even, the, the, um, uh, you know, even the Rwandan genocide is not... not um, not as, uh, as extreme or as thoroughgoing uh, as, as that. Um, so I think it, it has a unique horror, and that I think increasingly has been what's um, made people think it is different from uh, other periods of history. There are many other respects in which you can compare Nazi Germany, social policy, for example, policy towards women, um, uh, many things like that with Muslims Italy, or even in some ways with Stalin's Russia. Um, but that, that does stand out, I think. A question from Scott Wimble on Albert Speer. He's often cited as having a, an impact on the German psyche. Is this an exaggerated view about his influence? Albert Speer? Well, I never believe in things like the German psyche. Um, Germany, is, more than most societies, is a very divided country in which people of many different kinds thought and believed many different things. Uh, it's divided between Catholics and Protestants, whereas almost all other European countries are overwhelmingly the one or the other. In Germany, there's a much more even balance, and that's a key fact in modern German history. Um, it's divided by class. There's an enormous industrial working class in the 1930s, um, and uh, uh, the class antagonisms are very deep, and they crisscross with these other ones. So talk of the German psyche, I think, is just misleading, basically. Albert Speer was uh, a professional architect, you know, the kind of architect who runs a large firm with, with a complex organization. So uh, he's not just a, one guy sitting drawing buildings uh, on a piece of paper. 
Um, and he was taken on by Hitler as his personal architect and in some ways became his personal friend. And he eventually became munitions minister during the war <coughs> when his predecessor was killed in a plane crash uh, in 1942. And Speer reorganized uh, the economy, uh, rationalized it so instead of producing kind of 45 different kinds of nuts for tanks, there was only one kind and so on. Uh, he boosted industrial production and then he was tried at the end of the war for war crimes, in particular for the direction of forced labour. And his ministry uh, oversaw a vast programme of forced slave labour, in effect. Uh, there were seven million foreign, foreign um, uh, workers in Germany by the end of the war, partly because the Nazis did not want to recruit women into the industrial workforce. Um, and they gave them such generous subsidies that women didn't want to go and work in a factory anyway. Uh, they'd rather stay at home, as it were, and, and uh, ride it out and, and bring up their children is what the regime wanted. Uh, so uh, you've got this enormous system of forced labor in which hundreds of thousands of people die, killed, terrible working conditions, living in camps overseen by the brutal SS. Um, Fritz Sauckel, who was the commissioner for forced labor, was one of these rough, um, uh, sort of uncouth Nazis, and he was executed in Nuremberg trials. Speer was a smooth, polished, educated, middle-class professional, and he managed to persuade the jurors, the, the, the judges at Nuremberg, uh, that he'd not been involved in any of this, that he didn't know about Auschwitz. And he had a very clever line, which is, well, I didn't know about Auschwitz or the extermination of the Jews. Of course, if I had known, I'd have been horrified and I'd have opposed it and so on. Um, in fact, uh, he had a 20-year prison sentence and uh, came out and wrote his memoirs and so on. Uh, in fact, though, uh, there's good documentary evidence that he did know about the extermination of the Jews um, and indeed had a part in it. He was quite keen on having homes for his workers in staff in Berlin, um, in, in flats, apartments that were vacated by, by Jews. And he was at Posen when Himmler gave his famous notorious speech about the extermination of the Jews. So Speer, I think, pulled the wool over people's eyes, including Gitta Sereni, who wrote a very long sometimes quite critical book about him, but in the end, uh, he persuaded her too that he didn't know about it. Okay, I'm gonna take a question from up the back there. Uh, Australian PhDs now only 80,000 words in length. So how many? 80,000. 80,000, yeah. Um, do you see a future for the 200,000 plus mega book in the current publishing landscape? Well, um, the, I, I did an Oxford doctorate, and it's 100,000 words in Oxford. It's always been 80,000 in Cambridge, and this is said to be the reason why people who uh, did their doctorate in Oxford write in this very florid, oratory <laughs> style. People who write in Cambridge, they do the very spare kind of economical style. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, you, can, you, know you, you can do a PhD in, in 80,000 words. I've supervised about, about 30 of them in Cambridge. Um, I think uh, the, the amount of time you take over it, that's become an issue. Um, now, in Britain, you have to finish a PhD in four years, and every department has to have an 85% completion rate, or it gets blacklisted and doesn't get government grants until it's put its house in order. It's a very strong incentive. That's probably a good thing, actually. The days when you could take... I mean, when I got to Birkbeck in London, which is part-time uh, education, uh, I took over sort of managing the PhDs 
Uh, they just gave me something to do and, and, and to start with. And I found one person who had been doing his PhD for 35 years. Now, okay, it's part-time. Uh, I, took him, I took him on, and, and he did finish it, and he got, he got, got the PhD in an end. Um, I kind of made him do it, basically. Um, but I think that is a little bit too long, really. <laughs> As for the length of a PhD, uh, famously, of course, in France, there was never any, any uh, length. Pierre Chonu's uh, work on Atlantic trade is 10 volumes long, I think, though about eight of them are statistics. Um, uh, but I, I, there's a place for the long book, but I think the PhD was an apprentice piece, right? It's to show, it's to show you can do research and you get trained in doing research. Uh, and you're trained in writing, and a, a good supervisor uh, will actually supervise quite closely and direct the student and help the student in finding documents and using them and, and crack the whip, you know, get on, you've, you've only got six months to go. Um, but after that, if you want to write a long book and a publisher's willing to publish it, then why not? I mean, I can't complain. I've written three volumes to 2,000 pages on the Third Reich. I thought that's what it took to do. Um, in, in a reasonable level of detail. Though yesterday uh, I asked you about famous lecturers when you were at university and you'd mm. commented that AJP Taylor was just leaving when you'd got there. Yeah. But there were other lecturers that were memorable to you and you mm. said Trevor Roper was particularly memorable. I yes. thought you might want to share why Trevor Roper was well, particularly memorable. Yeah, I, you know, there were these famous lecturers. You we weren't long to see them. And Trevor Roper, um, <coughs> he was... Uh, it, you know, he came unstuck with the Hitler diaries. He identified them too quickly. He did change his mind before anybody else, um, but he did authenticate them. And ever since his name, he took a, had a peerage, he was known as Lord Dacre, and ever after that he was known as Lord Faker uh, <laughs> because the Hitler diaries were a forgery and he said they weren't. Um, but he's a very, um, a very elegant historian who wrote in a very elegant way and had an enormous range of subjects from the Middle Ages up to the present. He knew about 10 languages. Um, he was a very keen social and cultural historian at a time when diplomatic history and political history were very dominant. So he was the Regis Professor in Oxford. But he wasn't a great lecturer. He, he would read an essay out, basically, in his characteristically florid um, Oxonian style. And um, he was very short-sighted. And every now and then, and we'd always wait for this, every now and then he would uh, laugh so much at one of his own jokes, he'd lose the place. And then, then you'd see him going, his finger trying to find it, you know. Um, so I, I think to be a good lecturer, the first thing you need is a love for and enthusiasm of, for the subject. It doesn't matter, rules, rules of lecturing are usually completely redundant. That's what really gets, what, that's what gets, gets it across. If you can convey to people your enthusiasm for the subject, you're at least halfway halfway there. You have to do the boring things like structure it and so on. Um, but you, you, I think Taylor was extraordinary because he would just stand for half an hour or, or 50 minutes and just give a lecture, prepared. It was mock extempore, you might say. Um, but spellbinding, riveting stuff in, in, in very spare and powerful language. Um, there's an old adage, you know, that the, uh, a lecture tends to go from the notes of the lecturer to the notes of the student without going through the mind of either. <laughs> and I think that's to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> that's excellent advice. I've got a question from Naris. She says, what's the difference between national socialism and Marxist socialism? And would history be different with Marxist socialism in Germany? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, Hitler wanted from the beginning to 
uh, will unite Germans, and that meant uh, behind his version of fascism, and that meant um, winning over the working class uh, from socialism and communism, which is after all a third of the, you know, it's nearly half the population of the working class, and those two parties commanded a third of the population, so it's very important in building a mass party. And it's all symbolized in the Nazi flag, if you can visualize it. It's got a red background. It's personally designed by Hitler. Um, the red background for socialism. Uh, then it has a white circle and a black swastika. And the three colors, red, white, and black, are the colors of the old imperial Germany. Uh, so the, the message is uh, we're we are socialists, but we're also looking back to the days of the Kaiser. We're trying to combine these, these things. And the idea was, it was floated by um, some extreme anti-Semitic parties before the First World War, that's a fringe phenomenon, uh, of using anti-Semitism to win over, win over the working class for the national cause. So uh, it's national, um, nationalist in other words, uh, but it's all social, also socialist. And there was a lot in Nazi rhetoric uh, about equality, um, about giving the work his due. Hitler would always portray himself in the rambling uh, monologues, narratives in his speeches about his own career uh, with the soldier. He was a simple soldier on the front. He was a worker. He was poor when he lived in Vienna. Um, so there is that element in, in, in Nazism. Um, Marxism is, uh, Nazism was based on race. Uh, its view is entirely racist, whereas Marxist socialism was based on a view of class. And you can see that very neatly in what happens with the invasion of Poland in 1939. The Germans go in uh, and they, uh, and uh, the, the, the Western two thirds and the, the Red Army goes into the Eastern third. And uh, the Red Army launches a campaign uh, against um, the, the upper classes in Poland. Uh, it executes thousands of officers. It deports over a million uh, Poles to Siberia. Um, uh, it, it, it's a, an appalling um, uh, dictatorship. It tries to eradicate Polish culture. Um, uh, it nationalizes, it takes state control over all of the industries uh, and declares that it's doing so in the name of the workers. Uh, so the bosses are thrown out. Uh, where Nazism in the Western two thirds, it leaves a structure of industry and ownership um, uh, as capitalist one in the sense it kicks out the Polish owners but it puts in German ones instead. It doesn't nationalize uh, capitalist enterprises. And it deports, again, an astonishing number of million or so Poles, Polish men, to Germany on racial grounds as slave, as slave laborers. Um, so it's a very different kind of, kind of picture. So we've got time for one or two more questions. Uh, Professor, it's a, a double barrel question, one about historiography and one about the Second World War. How much do you think the Western allies knew about the phenomenal scale of the war on the Eastern Front and what did they think about it? And secondly, what do you think, perspective is everything and perspective changes everything, what do you think a young Richard Evans will think of the Second World War, say, in 30 years' time doing his PhD at Oxford? That's a very complicated kind of time travel sort of question. Um, <laughs> it's two, the scale, it is emphasizing. Um, once the war on the Eastern Front begins on the 22nd of June 1941, there's never less than two thirds of the entire German armed forces are engaged in, in, in the Eastern Front. So there's only one third in the whole of the rest of the, all the other theaters of war put together. 
Uh, it's on a vast scale. The numbers of dead, the numbers of tanks. Kursk is the largest tank battle in history. The scale, the sheer scale of some of the battles is just mind-boggling. And there's no parallel in the, in, in the West, really. Uh, of course, uh, West, the Western powers knew about this. Um, and they were, um, but they wanted to make sure that that sort of destructiveness didn't happen in the war in the West. So they delayed having a second front, the D-Day and Normandy invasions and so on, much longer than Stalin would have wanted. Stalin was extremely profligate with his soldiers. He didn't care how many died, basically. Was a general like Montgomery really did. Um, so uh, the, what's curious is then after the war, particularly in Britain and, and again in America, the kind of knowledge of the war on the Eastern Front really rather faded away. And if you look at the military histories of the 50s and the 60s, even the 70s, they're overwhelmingly fo focused on, on, uh, on the West. And the Eastern, it's only recently that you find books on histories of the Second World War, uh, like Anthony Beavers, for example, uh, give a much more prominence, quite rightly, to, to the, the Red Army and to the, the conflict in, in, in the East. Um, I think, um, what do we think of the Second World War? Well, what will we think in the future? It's very difficult to predict how it will be seen, but that has been a notable shift, and I think that's not going to change. I think general histories of the Second World War, well, they've got to do two things. Now they, they give enough prominence to the Eastern Front, but there are not enough histories of the Second World War that integrate the Pacific theatre with the uh, with the European and North African theatres. Um, they're treated too much as separate wars, but they're interlinked in all kinds of, in all kinds of ways. So I think that's something that a young historian should look at. Okay, we have time for one last question, I'm sorry. Thanks. Well, I, I feel so fortunate. I'm a PhD student in Chinese history, and I have a series of questions for you. And if your page on the Wikipedia was right, that in your earlier career, and you, are, you were influenced by E.H. Carl's book, What is History? Mm -hmm. So through your, your long career of uh, historical writing and research, do you have your own uh, answer to this question? Do you have a new perspective in this question? And then as your so book what, title... What question? Uh, what is history? Oh, I see. Right, okay. Yeah. And then... Uh, right, let's say two is enough, right? Two questions. Two questions. Two questions, okay. Another is that, as your book title suggested, you are dealing with the memories in history, and we probably can see the memories constitute a part of uh, the making of history. So, hmm. uh, will you see your method and approach uh, deviate a little from the announced school that earlier have influenced you? Right, okay, Thanks. well, if you take Yates Carr, um, Carr was, Foreign Office Mandarin for 20 years, and that very much influenced the way he saw the writing of history. He became a historian later on uh, in his career and wrote a huge history of Soviet Russia. But he thought um, that history is only important if it's useful, uh, essentially from foreign policy in a way. So the history of Soviet Russia is a very strange book indeed because it doesn't tell you how the Bolsheviks came to power. It doesn't say anything about the Bolshevik Revolution what it does is it looks at the policies that were implemented by Lenin and Stalin and how they developed before, you know, when the Bolshevik party was founded. Uh, and so it, what we now think of the most important parts of the Russian Revolution is just not there. 
um, vast detail about policies, many of which were not implemented. Um, so it's a bit of a kind of white elephant, really. Um, he wrote this, did a short series of lectures called What is History? Um, and uh, he has various answers in it. I actually did a, uh, a long um, foreword to a reissue of the book for, in its 50th, 40th, 40th anniversary. Uh, it came out in 1961, and I did it in 2001. Um, and I think his achievement was to say uh, that history is strongly affected by the historian's own experiences and perspectives. Um, but there are a lot of things uh, that, that don't stack up about, about the book. It's written in a very engaging style. Uh, and you also have to imagine these are lectures uh, given in, in Cambridge. And a lot of the people he's talking about are actually sitting there. You know, Herbert Butterfield was in the front row when Carr says, I prefer Butterfield sober to Butterfield drunk, you know, this kind of <laughs> stuff. So a very provocative and still, still well worth reading, I think, but, but to be looked at really very very critically. Um, uh, what is history? Well, history is to study the past. But it's a study of past not, uh, it's a study of past for a particular reason, and that is to under, understand and explain the past. So a chronicle is uh, the study of the past, but it's not the same as history because it simply is a list of dates and things that happen. My, uh, one of my teachers in Oxford was Martin Gilbert, who became a of Churchill. I was actually his last undergraduate student. I think after me, he gave up on them. You know, um, because he wouldn't discuss my ideas and arguments. I got very fed up with him. We got on very well in the end, and we became friends. But um, he's a chronicler. If you look at his books, they are just chronicles. You know, the book, his book, The First World War, History of the 20th Century, is just what happened in each year. And in his, his, by far his greatest book is The Holocaust, because that technique works really well with that, with that, that particular subject. Um, so it's not chronicle. You're not looking at the past. You're not studying the past for legal reasons to drag up details of why you should find somebody guilty or innocent. Um, and there are many other. It's not like art history where you are studying the past, but you're trying to classify um, different kinds of, of paintings and go into the iconography uh, of paintings and see where they came from. Uh, but most art historians, I'm getting into dangerous waters here, so I'd be careful. Okay, there are art historians in the in the audience, but most art historians are not really interested in explaining art relating to its social and political context. So your history is a study of the past with the aim of understanding and explaining it. Okay, that'll leave memory for later. It falls upon me to have the privilege of actually saying thank you to Richard. Now I know that this event means an enormous amount to everyone here. So Richard, there'll be students here who will be inspired and think, you know, gosh, history is really for me. The history teachers out there working to inspire the next generation. We want to say thank you from them. But also the students of history who have been reading your work for a long time. What an extraordinary privilege it is to meet you in person. Polybius always said it's best to see it with your own eyes. And I think he was right that uh, to read it, you do form a connection. You do begin to follow someone's work and you appreciate all the effort that's gone in. But also the power of the insight that's at work there. To hear it is also good. So those of you streaming, watching the streaming, you're very lucky. But to be here and to have had the chance to ask you questions is an extraordinary privilege. I'm sure Polybius would have looked very, very... He would have frowned upon the Twitter aspect of this. But he would have, I think, appreciated with all of us what a powerful thing it is to enter into conversation, to be able to ask questions and hear from you and to, to I think, really see your generosity 
in answering these questions, but also spending your whole day with history teachers here today in the ACT. We're incredibly grateful for your time. We thank you for making the journey to Canberra, and um, we just want to now express our thanks with a good round of applause. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.